Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Church planning, you have to chase a lot of foxes and put out a lot of fires, and it comes with a job description. But what I am called to do with my life, to be faithful to God, is to teach and preach the Scriptures and to equip God's people for works of ministry. That's it. That's what I'm called to do in terms of my volitional calling, what it is, the upward call of God in Christ. And so I just feel such a a renewed sense to continue in that journey, in that vein. But I tell you, it was even better because we got back yesterday... And I was blessed even more because my two girls who had been with their grandparents did work all week to save money or make money, but instead of using the money on themselves, they went and bought Meredith and I gifts. So yeah, we come back with gifts, but we walk into the kitchen and they've got gifts and all of our favorite things for us. And so uh, I got a picture from Sophie last night of my son down on the altar. in the altar, worshiping. And when I woke up this morning, all I said was, thank you, Lord. My kids showing the grace of God in their hearts. Not their behavior modification. The grace of God flowing from their heart. The presence of Almighty God. And I pray that God would establish this congregation and so many more like it right here in the midst of our culture. Of super cynicism to say we're going to mold a generation for Jesus Christ. God, raise up sons and daughters who prophesy. Amen? And so, thank God. Appreciate your prayers. And and it's just been an amazing, amazing week. If you have a Bible, go with me to the book of Romans. I gave you homework this week. Um, I trust that you did your homework, for those that you knew you had homework. And that's, yeah, reading chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans. Um, I want you to turn to that book as we get started. As you know, you can follow along on the uh, message card if you want to take a, a screenshot or a picture, I should say, of the QR code. Um, I'm going to do something that I've not done in the seven years uh, that we've been planted here at DP. And I've been feeling the desire to do this, and it's just so hard for me to get over the hurdle. I'm going to, for the Sundays that I have to minister in this month, simply teach you expositionally, verse by verse, straight through the, the, the passage, Okay. Now, here's what's so hard. I did not even create points. Now, for someone like me to not create points for a message in a passage is very hard, very difficult. It's as tempting to create points as it was tempting for me to pray for the Braves to win last night, okay? And I resisted the urge, but let's sweep them tonight, right? 7.05 or 7.02 p.m. All right, sorry, Mets fans, but... It's very difficult for me to work through a passage and not create points, but I'm going to do that for this month, these five Sundays we have in October. So what I want you to do, I'm telling you, is to grab your Bible so you can just go through the passage with me, okay? It's going to be my assignment to cover Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 23 this morning. If you're new to this format, some of you are new to kind of expositional teaching, Uh, we're going to be in the scriptures here for a bit. And if that's something you didn't bargain for, right? You say, well, it's way too long to sit still. I don't know. Uh, Speak now, forever hold your peace, okay? Um, But I want to give clarity with no filler words. I want to give very few anecdotes. 
there's going to be no screaming, no yelling. It's just going to be expositionally working through the passage. And uh, as we get through it, if you're in it to win it, I believe God's going to speak to us and challenge us and really cause us to bear fruit in His Word. Amen? So let's pray. Father, thank You for the grace of God that's been shown to us. Lord, the lavish favor that comes from Your hand and has been experienced in our lives. Lord, I pray that You would give us ears to hear what lessons You have for us in the book of Romans over this month. This incredible treatise, God, this monumental letter by Paul the Apostle and that we would see just how much You've loved us to establish a relationship with us, to call us and to convince us of our need of You. I pray You would strengthen us as a church as we study this portion of Scripture, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? So I believe this is my second or third time teaching through the book of Romans in some capacity, and yet when I come to this passage, I always feel inadequate. It is such an incredible scope and breadth of truth that I always approach this book with great anticipation. Now, if you're new to DP, we do two book book studies a year out of our 12 series. So out of 12 months when we're looking at our Psalmonic diet, I always plan two complete, just specific book studies. And Romans is a monster book. Okay, I'm stoked to go through it, but I'm also a little bit of fear and trepidation because the book is so monumental. We come in Romans now, chapter 1, to the third major section of the New Testament. The New Testament begins with a fourfold testimony of the life of Jesus. That's the first section of the New Testament. We call them the Gospels. It is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptics, and John is called the signs gospel. The second section of the Scripture, or the New Testament we get, is the book of Acts, or what we call the historical section. This tells us about the growth and the birth of the early church and how the gospel spreads to other parts of the world and how it was taken by the Apostle Paul and given to the Mediterranean world. Then we get in Romans and throughout the rest of the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelation, you enter into major section 3 of the New Testament, which are called the epistles or called the letters. And this is the correspondence written by men of God to different churches because of different situations that they're going through. So this, Romans 1, is the first of that section. It begins the epistle section. You remember that Jesus in the book of Acts told His followers, Acts 1 and 8, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and, watch this, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, as far as Jerusalem was concerned, Rome was pretty much the uttermost. So Rome, yes, in the ancient Near Eastern world was the center of the world, but as far as Jerusalem was concerned, it was far, far away. But Jesus said to the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. What's interesting to me about that is that at the time Jesus said that, Paul the apostle was not even a saved man. He was not even born again. He was not even a follower of Christ. And yet Jesus made the promise that this gospel would go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And yet Paul would be the one to take the gospel to the most utter parts of the earth at that time. And he wasn't even yet saved. God will get a hold of him in Acts chapter 9. And and when Jesus spoke this promise at the very beginning of Acts, the uttermost parts of the earth had really remained untouched. The gospel was just taking root in Jerusalem, but it was the intention of Jesus that the gospel would go to all parts of the world. 
Rome was the center of the world. As far as Rome is concerned, it was like a magnet for Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle had always wanted to go there. When we start reading the book of Romans, we're going to see that he expresses his desire to go to Rome. He's not there. He's never been there when he writes the book of, of Romans. Now, you've got to understand, in Acts 28, he gets there, but Romans is written before Luke accounts to Acts 28. Okay, So Romans is Paul pre-arrival into Rome. It's his heart. It's earnest desire. Now, chronologically, when you look in the book of Acts, okay, Paul makes it to Rome in the 28th chapter. He gets there. But as I said, when he writes this letter, it's still a desire in his heart. Something got in the way. He seems to always get blocked by trying to get to Rome. You remember, I'm sure, in the book of Acts, Paul the Apostle was in the temple in Jerusalem one day, and he had gone to the temple to minister, and he had taken a vow with four other men. It was called a Nazarite vow, and so Paul took money out of his purse, and so to speak, he paid the money for the completion of the Nazarite vow in the temple, the, the shearing of the hair, the sacrifice that Paul paid for, and when he was in the temple, some of the Jews saw Paul the Apostle and they recognized him. They saw that he was Saul of Tarsus, who had now turned Paul the Apostle. And since there was an Ephesian in the city that week named Trophimus, Trophimus was a Greek that the Jews recognized. He was a very famous Gentile, probably the most famous Gentile that day. They had made the mistake of thinking that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple, but Paul didn't do that. Paul wasn't responsible for that. So this riot breaks out in the city, Jerusalem, and they apprehended Paul, and they wanted to rip him limb from limb. They wanted to destroy him. Well, the garrison of the Roman guard got hold of it, and they apprehended Paul to protect him. He was a Roman citizen. So Paul stood up and gave a testimony before his Jewish brethren, which made them more unglued. Now they're ferocious. He goes into Roman custody again, and while he was in prison that night, Paul the Apostle, the Lord gave Paul a promise. The Lord visits him in the middle of the night, and he said, Paul, don't you dare fear, my son. As you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you will testify for me in Rome also. So it's like, yes, Paul's like, I've always wanted to go to Rome, and now the Lord has made me a personal promise. I'm going to make it to Rome so I can bear witness of my Lord. I can't wait to go there. I'm already planning my missionary trip. Paul's already got it in his mind, his agenda in his mind. What Paul did not bank on is how he would go to Rome. I'm sure he thought, I'm going to be a missionary to Rome. It's going to be my fourth missionary journey. Paul's already taken three missionary journeys. He's already traveled the ancient Near Eastern world, all the Mediterranean Sea, and he had been there. So he's thinking, I can't wait to take missionary trip number four to Rome. Well, he would make a fourth journey. He would go to Rome, though not as a missionary, but as a prisoner. For he was arrested in Jerusalem the day I just talked about, and he was taken to Caesarea Maritime. Sarah Caesarea, been to that city, beautiful city, right there on the Mediterranean Sea. He's going to spend three years in Caesarea going through successive trials before uh, Felix, the governor Felix, and then he sees Festus, and then he sees King Herod Agrippa. So Felix, Festus, King Herod Agrippa. Well, he gets accused every time while he's in Caesarea. They make up accusations against Paul the Apostle. So he thinks the trial is over. Well, he keeps going through the same escapade through year after year. Well, finally, he pulls out a right that is the right of every Roman citizen called Appa Lateo. Appa Lateo. It's the Latin word for making an appeal. 
Now, you got to understand, it was the right of any Roman citizen if he felt his case was not being tried justly. So if he felt it was unjust, he could make a personal appeal to have Caesar himself hear the case. That was the right of every Roman citizen. So finally, Paul had enough of the going round and round and round and talking to governor after governor. So he said, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. Well, King Herod Agrippa said, you know what? This guy could have gone free, but he appealed to Caesar. So to Caesar, he'll go. So what happens? Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, got out of Caesarea and he makes his way to Rome. And he does that by listening to the Lord, by making an appeal to see Caesar. And now Paul's taken, he's putting on a grain ship as a prisoner, and he makes his journey to Rome. So he goes incarcerated in chains, but what's cool about that is that instead of raising money for the churches to send him on a fourth journey, the Roman government pays for his trip to Rome. Now I love that. I don't know about you, but I love that. You're going to Rome... And all expenses are paid, God says to, to, to Paul, right? I got you covered, and I'm going to make sure you not only go to Rome, but you ain't got to travel around to the other churches and get money from brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't have to raise money on your own. You don't have to use any of your own funds. The Roman government's going to pay for you to be a missionary to Rome. Listen, church, I do believe that God is interested in economy. And if you're looking for a deal, God maybe can get you a deal although the outcome will never be what you intended it to be. I'm going to tell you that's how God works. If you want a deal, he'll give you a deal. But it'll come in a way that you don't want the deal or never intended the deal to actually happen. So here he goes as a prisoner, and he's making his way to Rome. But here in this book that we're going to study, he's not gone yet. It's his desire. You say, well, Craig, what can we say about the book of Romans? Well, the book of Romans has been called the manifesto of the Christian life, the great Christian manifesto. Now, there are some words that you need to know are repeated in this book. Let's look at a few of them. First of all, the word law appears 78 times in this book. 16 chapters, 78 times the word law appears. Now, this doesn't just refer to the law of Moses. Sometimes it's used like a principle. So Paul will say, for the law of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So he's not speaking there of the law of Moses. He's speaking of the principle of life and the principle of faith versus the principle of death. But 78 times the word law is used in the book of Romans. Secondly, the word righteousness appears 66 times. Righteousness appears 66 times in 16 chapters. And the word faith appears 62 times. So if you look at the repetition of the three top key words, you can get an idea of what the theme of the book is. We know the theme just off word usage. Let me propose to you a theme for our next five weeks. You put those words together, here's the theme of the book. It's how we are made righteous before God by faith. That's the theme of the book of Romans. How human beings become the righteousness of God in Christ through faith. The principle or the law of faith. Not the law of Moses, not the law of the principle of death. We are made right before God. We're given a righteousness by our faith. Now, the great summary statement for the whole book would be found in verses 16 and 17, chapter 1, where the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, and also for the Gentile. Watch this. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Faith. 
I want you to hear me, church. A study of the book of Romans can be found in every major revival in the whole history of the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to just think of that for a moment and let that sink in. Every major revival in church history globally, you will find the leaders of the revival transformed, touched by, torched, lit on fire by the book of Romans. One of them is the great Protestant Reformation of of whom all of us are the fruit. This is the book that transformed the life of Martin Luther. Martin Luther became an Augustinian monk, a really strong practicing Catholic. At 21 years of age, he was in the halls of Erfurt, Germany. He's there in Germany as the Augustinian monk, but he struggled. And you say, Craig, how did he struggle? He struggled with the burden of his own sin. He wanted so bad to be free from his own impulses and own compulsions. So at 21 years of old age, he finds the book of Romans and decides, I'm going to make a prolonged study of the book of Romans. And Paul, the apostle, said the book of Romans is the chief part of the New Testament. So Paul said it's the purest gospel that I can write to you. Well, let me tell you a little bit about what he found to be there. Martin Luther, as I mentioned, was so burdened by his own sin, burdened by his own you know, contrition. And he started reading the book of Romans. And he read that little phrase in, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And his greatest impediment to becoming a true believer was that phrase that bothered him greatly. It was the phrase, the righteousness of God. Now, why would that be an impediment to him? Well, that bothered Martin Luther because for him, as a good practicing Catholic, that meant that God is righteous, and the righteousness of God is the righteousness by God, or God has, by which he punishes the unrighteous. So every time he read Righteousness of God, he always thought of being punished by God's righteousness. Well, he begins to read at 21 years of age through the book of Romans, and he found out that for 21 years this has been defined wrongly. This is not how the righteousness of God appears at all in the book of Romans. The righteousness of God that Paul was speaking about isn't a righteousness of God judging an unrighteous world. It is a righteous God imputing righteousness to an unrighteous world by faith. It is God gifting a world His own righteousness on the basis of repentance and faith. That God forgives the ungodly, right? Or the, the, the one that reaches out in hope. And it totally changes Martin Luther's life. God justifies the ungodly. So one of the greatest commentaries on the book of Romans, and I know I'm belaboring, I'm giving you a long introduction, but believe me, you're going to need to know a little bit about the background to understand this book. Martin Luther writes a commentary on the book of Romans, and in the 18th century, 1700s, a guy by the name of John Wesley starts reading it. And when John Wesley picks up the commentary of, no, not even the book of Romans. I didn't say John Wesley read Romans. I said John Wesley read the, the commentary from Martin Luther on Romans. The Bible says, or the history says, that just reading the introduction of the commentary on Romans by Martin Luther, Wesley said, My heart grew strangely warm at the truth that I was reading. And that one moment provoked a great evangelical revival in the 18th century under John and Charles Wesley, of which the Methodist movement is still around today. So again, every great revival, you just find it over and over again, will trace some of its influence back to the book of Romans. Now let me tell you something. In the book of Romans, every biblical doctrine is found. Every biblical doctrine. Usually articulated and spelled out, 
but at least found every major biblical doctrine. So let me give you a quick outline of the book. This is going to be really memorable for you. I want to make it easy. Romans has four categories. Easy to remember. The wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God, and the will of God. And that's how the 16 chapters are broken up. So it starts with the wrath of God, then the grace of God, the plan of God, and the will of God. So chapter 1, verse 20, really starting in verse 18, begins the wrath of God. That goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. The wrath of God is the focus. So chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, wrath of God. Paul will paint a dark background about the wrath of God, followed by verse 21, chapter 3, all the way to the end of chapter 8, which is verse 39. So five chapters, grace of God. All grace of God. Then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's the plan of God for the Jew and Gentile. Because there's all sorts of questions about if we're saved by faith, well, what about the Jewish race? You know, they don't have faith. Like, what about the Jewish nation? Does God have plans for Israel anymore? Does he not have plans for Israel anymore? And so chapter 9, 10, and 11 is about the plan of God. And then in beginning in chapter 12, all the way to the end of the book, which is chapter 16, it's all about the will of God and the life of the believer. So, we begin. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle... Literally, the words to be there, you'll see in your Bible, are italicized because they were added by translators. They're not in the original text. Called an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now, let me tell you, church, ancient letters always put the author's name first. In our Western culture, we put the author's name last. We put the recipient's name first. So if this were a Western letter, not an Eastern letter, it would say, Dear Romans. And then we would have 16 chapters. And then finally it would say, Paul the Apostle, servant of Jesus Christ. So in the ancient world, we would have to get this long scroll. And the book of Romans, right, to be to us, we're the Romans. You would look at it and you'd go, man, who wrote this thing? And you'd go all the way to the end of the scroll. And you'd turn over the scroll. It'd take a long time. And you'd turn over the scroll and you'd go, oh, Paul wrote it. And so I think it's better, and that's what the ancient world does. It's better to begin letters by who wrote it. Not the recipient, but the actual author. And the author names himself or the author names herself in every ancient literature. So Paul writes this letter. Well, Paul writes so many letters of the New Testament. The word Paul means little. Everybody say little. Now, of course, his Hebrew name was not Paul, was it? His Hebrew name was Saul. And Saul means asked of God. Ask of God. He was named after King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Paul also was of Benjamin. He was a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was named after one of the heroes in antiquity. And this hero was King Saul. Saul of Tarsus was his name. Now, Saul of Tarsus was from the area of Cilicia. Cilicia is the ancient region which is now today eastern Turkey. And Paul, Saul, was from the city of Tarsus. Now, I want to tell you something, church. The name Saul, I get. I get that. But the name Paul as I mentioned, means little. Now, we don't know exactly why he was named Paul. You've heard me preach a message to you in this church. He goes from Saul the Great to Paul the Little in his conversion, but we don't know exactly why he got this name. That's his Gentile name, or we we would call it actually his Greek name. I've told you before, though, that in ancient times, people would name their children based on the circumstances of their birth. So most scholars say that it it was the fact that Paul was a small child and we knew he grew up to be a small man. You say, Craig, how do you know that? There's one piece of information in all of antiquity, in all of our writings, 
that gives us one ancient record about the Apostle Paul. We don't know if it's true, we don't know if it's false, but this is what is said. The only surviving description of what Paul looked like is really interesting. It says he was a very short man, he was hunched over, constantly looks like a hunched, you know, you know, hunchback of Notre Dame kind of deal. He's got like a hunched back, and he had a hooked nose. And according to the description, he was losing hair on the top of his head very quickly and young. And he has one, the Bible, the text says his eyebrows were joined in the middle. So you got a unibrow, hooked nose, unibrow, balding short guy, and the description says bow-legged. All right, so maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. I'm, I'm so glad you thought as funny as I was, Stacy. Now, it's interesting that the way he looked, because he will mention in his letters, when you look at me, you might not think I'm impressive, hunchback of, Notre Dame, of Tarsus here. But wait till you read my stuff. Wait till, wait till you read my insight. Wait till you understand what I understand about Jesus. And he's very, very powerful. So he's not much to look at, but he's very persuasive and bold in his speech and in his ministry, in the way he ministers to other people. So Paul introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 1. Not Paul the great apostle, not Paul the, the main man, but Paul the slave. It's one of his favorite titles for himself. Doulos is the Greek term here. Doulos means servant. Notice it says separated to the gospel of God. I love that. Separated to the gospel of God. Before Paul was saved, he was a Pharisee. He says in Philippians, when he writes the letter, he said, I was a Pharisee. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As touching the law of Pharisee concerning righteousness which comes from the law, Paul said, I was blameless. I was perfect. Now, the word Pharisee means separated. Parashim is the Hebrew word. Parashim means to be separated. Now, watch this. The idea in the Hebrew mind is to be separated from people, to be separated from activities, to be separated from sinfulness. I live a life of separation from these things. And very stringent Pharisees uh, used to pride themselves in being unlike everybody else, separated from them. So as you would see a devout Pharisee on the street corner, when he walked down the street, if, a, if Gentiles were coming, passing the Pharisee, they would take their robes, the Pharisees, and they would get them real tight around their, their rib cage, as if to say, I won't even let you get close to rustling my robes, you stinking Gentile. You are so defiled. You are so nasty. You are so unlike God. And so they would hold their their, their garments really, really tight. I'm just going to be separated from you. But here Paul doesn't say I'm separated from something. He says I'm separated to something. Now I want you to see why that's so important in our modern day world. Because a lot of people in our churches take refuge in a negative righteousness. So they define their life by what they don't do. I, I don't do that. I'm not involved in that. I don't do that. I'm like, cool, what do you do? What are you separated to? Not what are you separated from, because the call to repentance is not just a call to run away from something. It's a call to run towards someone. That's what true repentance is. And so, so Paul is now using the same pedashim word that's historically used to be separated from to saying I'm separated to something. Look, church, I think it's possible to have a saved soul but a lost life. 
You can have a saved spirit in a lost life. Why? You're saved. Your soul saved. You're going to heaven, but you don't do anything with your life. You don't do anything with your life. Don't do anything with the years that you have. And so you're not separated to some what? Grand purpose to be used by God. I'm separated, Paul said, to the gospel. I got a question for you this morning. Is that how you would define your life? Separated to the gospel. That's what my life's about. I'm separated for the gospel. Paul says, I want to make sure people hear this good news. That's what gospel means of Jesus Christ, which he promised, notice, let's continue, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Old Testament anticipated the New Testament. The prophet in Jeremiah chapter 39 said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It won't be like the old covenant. So it was promised before in the Holy Scripture. The prophet Isaiah predicts the coming of Christ. He predicts the sacrifice of Christ on the cross all the way back in Isaiah 53. Look at Romans 1, 2, and 3 concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Notice that. God began to promise the Messiah very definitely, unmistakably, when David was born and he began to grow and God began to make a covenant with King David. God appeared to him. Follow with me, church. I'm going to show you how this everlasting covenant gets made. God told David, I'm going to make with you an everlasting covenant. So one day, David was living in his palace in Jerusalem. This great, amazing palace. He's the second king of Israel. He's got it made. He's got his servants. He's got a big screen TV. He's watching the Braves take on the Mets tonight. He's got a lot of donkeys, right, in his garage. I mean, he's got it made. It looks awesome. He's feeling feeling like he's on top of the world. He's got maidservants, etc. Well, he's just looking around. He's like, man, I got it good. But then he looks out his window and he looks and he sees the tabernacle. Now hear me, this is not the temple. This is the tabernacle. And there's a tent outside because the children of Israel had taken the Ark of the Covenant and and the tabernacle from the house of a man named Obed-Edom and they moved it to Jerusalem, but it's still a tabernacle. It's still a tent. And David's just like, man, here I am living in this great palace and God's living in a tent. God's camping out over at Alatoona and here I am in my mansion. And so he brings Nathan in, the prophet, and he goes, Nathan, I got this idea. He said, Nathan, I, I've been looking around the city and I, I, I got a palace and I got it made and I'm living on this high hog, so to speak, in heaven and I got this beautiful, beautiful palatial expression, this palace, but God, he's still living in that tent over there, that tabernacle. And so you know what I'm going to do, Nathan? I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to spare no expense. I'm going to make him a great house. And Nathan the prophet looks at David and he says, David, awesome idea. Do all that is in your heart. But then Nathan goes back home and he's asleep at night and the Lord wakes him up in the middle of the night and said, I did not tell David to build me a house. You spoke out of turn, Nathan. You're my prophet. You say what I say, not what you want to say. And he says, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go back to the king and you're going to have to tell him he cannot build me a house. Nathan, you spoke rashly. You have spoken out of turn. I didn't tell David to build me a house. In fact, David can't build me a temple. I'll never allow it. His hands are full of blood. He is a war man. He's a man of war. I do not want him touching anything of the temple. So you're going to have to go back to him tomorrow and tell him, build, not, not build me a temple. Your son will. He doesn't know his son yet. But your son, Solomon, will build a temple. But I want you to tell him this. That's the bad news, Nathan. But I want you to tell him this. 
I am going to build him a house. I'm going to build him a dynasty, actually. And I'm going to use him and his grandchildren to build a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And somebody from the house of David will reign upon the throne forever. Go tell him that. So next day comes. Nathan gets up early in the morning, gets his breakfast. He goes to David. He's like, I'm sorry, dude. I totally spoke out of turn. And I told you, do all that is in your heart. And God said, eh, can't do that. You're a man of blood. You're not building the temple. That's the bad news. But can I tell you the good news, David? You ready? He's like, give it to me. God's going to build you a house, man. He's going to build you a real good house. He's going to build you a dynasty. And this covenant that God made with him is the idea of this promise that we see in verse 1, 2, and 3 of Romans chapter 1. Paul's mentioning. He's mentioning before in the Old Testament through David. By the time we get to Isaiah, the notion is so clearly established that the Messiah is going to come. Somebody's going to come. Somebody's going to be born to fulfill the promise that God had made to David. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. His name shall be called Mighty God. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. I love the scripture. And his name shall be called what? Prince of Peace. And he said, upon the throne of David to order it and establish it from this time forth, Nathan said, even evermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And that's the promise that now Paul is referring to in verse 1. So it's unmistakable. God had promised a kingdom through somebody of the line of the king of David. So that's very important to the Jewish nation because of the promise. Let's continue, verse 3. And so it's concerning his son, Jesus. Notice this. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, the text says. And when you talk about concerning his son, Jesus Christ, what's he mentioning? How is he communicating? who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead through whom we have received grace, unmerited favor, undeserved blessing, and we received apostleship. Now that's what Paul was called to do. He was an apostle. Everybody say apostle. Apostle means sent one. So God sent him out with a task. He sent him out with a mission. He said we've received grace and apostleship. Watch this. For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also, you all in Rome, you believers in Rome are called, or the called of Jesus Christ. Watch this. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now, if you'll look in the text there, you'll see to be on your Bible is in italics because to be is not actually there in the real text. They're italicized. Why? Because they're not in the original. They're added by translators to make us make sense of this. But the original, it doesn't say you are called to be saints. You know why it doesn't say you're called to be saints? Because if we read that like good Americans, we might start thinking, well, maybe if I do good things and I die and miracles are done after me in my name and then people pray to me once I'm dead and things happen and the church canonizes me as a saint, then I'll be a saint. So, no, no, if you take out the words to be, since they're not in the original, it says to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Look at me, church. A saint is not a dead person. A saint is a living person. A saint is a living vessel. Those made right in the love of God, by the rights of God. The word set apart or saint means to be set apart. It means hagios. The word holy, the word saint, come from the same root word in Greek. So you're a saint. Now, we got some people in here that grew up in the Catholic Church. When you grow up in the Catholic Church, you got saints you pray to, saints that have been canonized, 
That is not the biblical notion of a saint. That's an incorrect biblical notion of a saint. Saints are God's people living. So you're a saint, I'm a saint. And feel free from this point forward to call me St. Craig. It's got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? It's biblical. I'd love if we started calling 21st century believers St. Craig. St. Lyle. Isn't that awesome? St. Lyle. Sounds great. St. Meredith. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, call saints. Watch this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, Paul's never been to Rome. He's anxious to get there. He's just about to mention his desires. But it begs the question. If Paul is writing Christians in Rome and Paul's never been to Rome, how did the church in Rome get started? Wasn't started by Paul. Well, let me tell you how the church in Rome was started. It was started because of the day of Pentecost or the visitors to Jerusalem. So on the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that there were people from all sorts of places in the world. Elamites, Parthians, Medes. Either that light's getting brighter or the glory of God is shining on me. Visitors, this is what it says, from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So here's what happens on the day of Pentecost. They come, they see, they heard the preaching of Peter. They're there on the day of Pentecost. They saw the great miracles that take place. Some of the 3,000 that are baptized by the apostles are Romans. And so what do they do? They're saved in Jerusalem. They go back to Rome and they start a church. And boy, did that church bear fruit. And Paul is so anxious to go see them. Look at verse 8. He says, I thank my God, true Jesus Christ, for y'all. Paul is a southerner, you see. For you all. Watch this, verse 8. That your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Folks, please don't miss this next part. Do not miss this next part. That I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established. I want to see you face to face and I want to take a spiritual gift from the Lord and I want to impart it to you that you would be established. Back to verse 8. Paul mentions that he prays for them. He does that in all of his letters, but notice how he begins verse 8. His prayer for them. He says, first, I thank my God. Can I just say to us, church, it's a shame that some of us think of prayer as a crisis event. I'm in trouble. I better pray. Well, things are getting really bad in America. All we can do is pray now, as if we couldn't pray for the years before this. All we can do is pray. No, he said, first, I thank God. That's first in his prayer activities. Not, I'm in trouble, help. The first of your prayer activities, you're growing in the grace of God. It's not, God, I need you right now. Not, God, I'm, help. I'm, in, I'm in need of help. It's first, I thank my God. In everything, give thanks, Paul said, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Can I pause this morning and just say, think of how much we have to be thankful for, church. And that is something we need to be reminding ourselves of daily. Our thanksgiving should be daily because we think of daily all of the blessings we receive. Psalm 103 said, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let all that is within me bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. What does He do? He forgives all of your iniquities. He heals all of your diseases. He rescues your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He fills your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He gives you good food to eat. He gives you tender 
tender mercies. He gives you blessings. Your sins are forgiven. You are to pause and think of those things and go, thank you, Lord. And it should happen all day long. First, I thank my God. That's how prayer is. See, the reason we fell at prayer is because we so often reduce prayer to results instead of a relationship with God. And prayer, first and foremost, is not about results and receiving. Prayer is about relationship with God. And prayer is about saying, God, I am overwhelmed when I think of your goodness. I thank my God. Paul said, I thank God. First, I thank God. Some people hear that and they go, well, yeah, but Pastor Craig, it's just so much fun to complain. It's just my nature, man. I like to gripe. Let me tell you something. Complaining is not a spiritual gift. And you're not going to be honored for it. And can I just tell you something else? When you complain, half the people that hear your complaints, they don't even care. And the other half are finally glad that you got what, what's coming to you. Ain't nobody going to feel for you. Half of them don't care, and half of the others are like, man, I'm so glad that the shoe dropped on them. So rather than complaining, it's time to be thankful. But thankfulness has to be learned. Paul said while he was in jail, he said, I learned in every state, whatever I state I'm in, I've learned to be content. This is, folks, this is the hard part for me as a pastor. Can I get vulnerable with you? When I pastor people that I love deeply and they keep on having to, month after month, come back around the complaining spirit, it makes me want so bad to help them violently in Jesus' name. But I just have to realize you have to learn it. You have to learn how to be grateful. You have to learn contentment in the grace of God. You've got to learn to stop complaining and start praising God. You've got to learn, first, I thank my God. And you learn contentment and you learn thanksgiving. I love the story about a little boy who built a little boat. He labored long on it. He glued it up. He painted it up. And it was just a perfect day with a light breeze. And he takes it out on the pond near his house. And he sets the boat on the pond. And the little sails were filled with a slight breeze and it starts going across the pond. And he just took such delight in his boat. He thought, I mean, I've, been play, I've been planning this for a while, months. This is perfect. But while it was right about in the middle of the lake, the little slight breeze developed into a strong wind and then the prevailing winds take over and the little boat sinks. And instead of complaining and griping, he smiled really big and he goes, man, what a great day to fly a kite. And he went home and got his kite. That's a good way to look at life. It's a good day to fly a kite. Didn't go as I planned today, but I wonder what God has in store. I wonder what He has in store. See, for us, friends, when we start following Jesus, a lot of us, we say, we want to live by faith, but the moment we can't see or understand what God is doing, we throw up our hands and we say, are you even there, God? God, why, why did you do that? God, why did you allow that to happen? And we say we want to live by faith, but we also want to be able to understand why everything bad happened. We want to be able to say, oh, I get it now. But that's not walking by faith, is it? That's walking by sight or understanding. And God doesn't allow that kind of walking. We don't walk by understanding. We walk by faith. Faith means trusting God even when you can't see Him. Faith means I'm waiting patiently to the end even even when I don't understand. I'm going to experience a resolution. Faith means I'm not going to declare a verdict over my life until I experience the glory of eternity. It reminds me of one of my favorite little stories about the, the bird who flew south for winter. But he got a real late start flying south for winter. So he gets up real high and his wings begin to freeze. And so his wings freeze up and he has a crash landing and hits the ground. Terrible. He thought, you know what, I can't get up. My wings are frozen. I'm going to die right here in this, this field. Well, about that time a cow comes by 
and Cal walks right over the top of him and drops manure right on top of his head. And he thought, well, it just went from bad to worse. But then he noticed after, he's like, I'm now going to die smelling like manure. But after two or three minutes, he realized the manure is real warm. And all of a sudden, his wings start moving again. They start falling out. And he thought, man, I can fly again. So he starts flapping his wings on the ground, and he starts chirping, chirping. Well, that chirping gets the attention of a cat, and the cat comes over and eats him. Well, there's three lessons about how God works in our life. Lesson one, not everyone who drops on you is your enemy. Not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Number two, not everyone who digs you out of your manure is your friend. And number three, when you're in manure, sometimes it's helpful to keep your little chirper shut and not just begin to run your mouth to everybody else until the end of the story and just be thankful. Stop complaining in the midst of the manure and start saying, God, I trust you in the midst of this. I, I, I'm, going, I'm going to remain faithful, God, where I'm at. This is what Paul is saying. Listen, I thank God. I thank God. Notice he says in verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established. In other words, I want to come and I want to serve you. But look how he adjusts that little bit in verse 12. He says that I may be encouraged, we may be encouraged together by mutual faith, both you and me. Now friends, listen, Paul the Apostle was never above telling his audience, you really encourage me. I really need to be together with you. This is not just about me ministering to you. It's you ministering back to me as well. And so he's writing a letter, but he longs to see them. You know, there's something about writing or texting or emailing that just isn't satisfying. If you've ever been in a long-distance relationship, you know this, don't you? You long to communicate so much. I remember going on long internships when Meredith and I were in our dating days. Boy, we're waiting for those eight weeks to finish up, right? And it's expensive back in those days. Was, you remember you had to wait till 9 p.m. to make the phone call at night, three minutes. And I remember, we still have our letters. So I read that correspondence sometimes, and I and just realized the longing in the letters. It was so unsatisfying to just write to one another. We wanted to see each other face to face. And of course, we've now seen each other face to face, and we got three kids to prove it. Verse 13. Verse 13 says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now. Watch this, that I might have some fruit among you. Wow. He says, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul said, I really want to go to Rome, but I don't want to go as a tourist or a sightseer. I want to go as a fruit bearer. Look at me, church. Do you want to go to church or go to work this week as a fruit bearer? What a great question. Moms, do you want to teach kids, and change diapers, and cook meals this week with one intention to be a fruit bearer? He said, I want to come to you, Rome, because I want to bear fruit among you. I want, I want to do something spiritual in your midst. I want to minister to you in the Spirit. Do you go into your week saying, I'm going to find somebody today to minister to in the Spirit? That's my longing. That's my desire. Interesting in verse 14, that phrase, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. Let me unravel that. We're going to come land this plane in a moment. Now, there's a couple ways you can be in debt. Number one, you can borrow money from somebody. Now you're in debt to that person. So you have to pay off whatever you borrowed from them and you're in debt to them until you pay it off. But there's a second way you can be in debt and this is what Paul's referring to here. Here's the second way. 
you're giving money from someone else for someone else. So you're a third party. At that point, you become a debtor to the third party. You have an obligation, so you owe a debt. And the way you pay it off is you take the money that's given to you and you don't spend it on yourself. You don't take it and spend it on oneself. You deliver it to them. You're in debt to them unless you give it to them. And Paul says, I am a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise. You say, Craig, what's the debt? Let me tell you what the debt is. The debt is the gospel. Paul said, I'm in debt to share the message with people. You're not to spend it on yourselves. Come on, folks. You're not to take the gospel and just let it be about you and us four and no more and my own family. I'm in debt to give the gospel to somebody else. I'm in debt to give the good news to people around me. I'm in debt to share the message with people, including Romans. Watch this. My obligation is not to hoard the gospel. My obligation is to herald the gospel. My obligation is to share the gospel. That's the debt. I was reading this week, um, maybe it was yesterday, in in 2 Kings. And and there's a famine in Samaria, up in in central, uh, middle part of Israel. And in the city of Samaria, there was a famine. And the Syrian army had encamped around Samaria to destroy it. So in chapter 7, it says there were four lepers, guys with leprosy. And they're hanging out at the gate at the city of Samaria. And, And there was a famine right, in Samaria, and these men had a death sentence. They're literally going to die when you have leprosy. It would consume your body, and they're starving to death, and there's a famine in the land, so they look at each other, and they say, hey, one of the lepers says to his buddies, he says, you know what? We're going to die. Why are we just going to sit here until we die? If we stay here, we're going to die. If we go into the city of Samaria, we're going to die because there's no food in this city, but if we're, what if we had this idea to go to the camp of the enemy? the Syrians, and turn ourselves in to our captors. It could be that they let us live and they feed us a meal. Now, it could be that they don't. They'd kill us, but who cares? We're going to die anyways. If we sit here, we're going to die. We go into the city, we're going to die. We could just try to go into the camp of the enemy and we could turn ourselves in and they may feed us and we may live. What do we got to lose? So they go to the Syrian camp and nobody's there. It's totally vacant. You remember the story? What had happened is the night before, the Syrians had imagined that they heard the sound of chariots and they thought an army had come in like the the Hittites or the Egyptians had been conscripted by the Israelites to fight for them. And so they take off and flee the city and they run away. So those four lepers come in and they find all these tents filled with food and all kinds of wine and drink and water and gold and silver. And they start drinking and they start eating and they go from tent to tent and they're hoarding, hiding all the stuff they found. And they go, man, this is just awesome. Isn't this awesome? We're having a heyday. And then they realize, they look at each other again and they're like, man, this is not right, man. This is not right at all. What we're doing is is not right. This is a day of good news and yet we remain silent. We are here in the enemy camp with all their supplies and we owe it to the people in Samaria to tell them that there's food for you and there's water for you and that there are supplies for you. Man, there is, this is a day of good news and we remain silent. Can I tell you, church, this is a day of good news and we still remain silent in the West. We are in the midst of the enemy's camp. It's already been plundered by Jesus. We're receiving a blessing after blessing after blessing and we're hoarding it for ourselves and not heralding it to the camps around us to the world around us. And so God, but Paul says, listen, I am a debtor. I'm in debt to the Greeks. I'm in debt to the barbarians and to the wise. Now let me explain that real quick. Greeks and barbarians. The Jews divided the world into two groups. Jews, Gentiles, non-Jews. 
And a stringent, devout Jew would say God created Gentiles so that it can make hell hotter. So a stringent Jew would say they're supposed to burn. Gentiles are supposed to burn and God did it so he could get glory out of burning them. That's why God made the Gentiles. But the Jews, we're the chosen race. So Paul's going to have to deal head on with that. We did that two months ago. But then the Greeks divided the world into two groups. They saw them as Greeks and barbarians. And if you weren't a Greek, you were a barbarian. The term barbarian is an onomatopoetic word. Onomatopoeia. Meaning that the sound is the definition of the word. So the Greeks would listen to non-Greeks speak. And the Greeks believed their language was the language of gods. It's beautiful. It's expressive. Like, Jesus Christos huyas deo soter. Jesus Christ, God the Son, Savior in Greek. It's a beautiful language. It's an awesome language. Well, the Greeks took such pride in their language. Their culture second to none. So if you're not a Greek, you're a barbarian. And they would listen to the language of the non-Greeks. And it sounded to them like, bar, 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 gibberish. So they coined the, tar- the term barbarian. Barbarian. People who don't speak Greek. So when Paul says, I'm a debtor to both Greeks and to the barbarians, to Jews and Gentiles, what he means is I have an obligation to the high class and the hit class. I got an obligation to the down and outers, and I got an obligation to the up and outers because they're both out. I've got an obligation to people who study Socrates and people who can't spell Socrates. That's what I got an obligation to, to share the gospel with anybody and everybody. To all men, I'm obligated. And he said, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of Christ. For it's the power of God, verse 16 and 17, to everyone who believes, watch this, to the Jew first, also for the Greek. And this is a phrase that's going to get repeated over and over in the book. Jew first, Greek. Now, friends, that's a theological priority. I mean, God made covenant with the Jewish people, so God makes promises, the Messiah to the Jewish people. So it's a theological priority for Paul to go to the covenantal people first. And the gospel goes to Jerusalem and Judea. But it's also chronological priority. What do you mean, Craig? Whenever Paul would go into a city, a Greek city, a Roman city, he would go first to the synagogue and preach. Why? Because it's Jew first. So he'd go to the synagogue and say, I want you to know your Messiah has arrived. All of the promises of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Jesus. And you know what he would do? After the synagogue, he would go to the Agora. Agora means marketplace. And he would spend however long preaching to Gentiles. So he says, to the Jew first, then the Gentile. Look at verse 17. For in it, here's that great verse, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now let me finish this by telling you about Martin Luther. That verse I just read in verse 17 is the key verse that transformed Martin Luther. The just shall live by faith. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk in Erfurt, Germany. He was so burdened by his own failures, weighed down by his own sins, that he went to confession daily. Well, the priest got so tired of seeing him, worn out, because because Martin Luther would come every day with simple little things, like I look to the left when I should have looked to the right. I mean, he was just so keen a conscience, like constantly confessing. So finally, the priest said to Martin Luther, go out and commit some sin worthy of confessing. That's what he told him. Instead of bringing all this drivel to me, go out and do something that's real bad. Well, Martin Luther then travels to Rome. And in Rome, even to this day, there's a historic church called the Church of St. John Lateran. It's a very historical building from antiquity. It was a palace at one time where all the several Roman emperors lived. And it had been turned into a church at that time. 
at the Church of St. John Lateran has a set of stairs called the Sancta Scala. The Sancta Scala. And it was believed, purported to be legend, the very stairs the throne of Pontius Pilate led up to Jesus. So they took those stairs and put it in Sancta Scala. And so devout Catholics in times past, like Martin Luther, they did it for this reason. They would get in front of the Sancta Scala. They would have no pads on their knees. They would get on their knees and crawl up the stairs. And they would do it on purpose. Crawling on the stairs. And their knees would be so bloody. So worn out. They did it, they still, pre-COVID at least they did. I don't know if they're doing it now, but they still do it to this day. And every step you get, another year off purgatory. So you just keep on wearing out your knees and climbing the steps. So here's Martin Luther. Imagine this, y'all. Trying to burn off all of his sins of purgatory so he can go to heaven. And while he's going up the steps of the Sancta Scala, he's rehearsing Romans chapter 1 in his mind. The just shall live by faith. And in that moment, with bloody knees on the steps, he remembered that verse. And it bore the seed that would literally change the world called the Protestant Reformation. What am I doing climbing these stairs? The just live by faith and faith alone. Salvation isn't a fee. Salvation is free. It's not something I earn. It's a gift I receive. And that's what got him up and got him back. And the Reformation was on. Verse 18, notice he said, For the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. Whoever's playing keys, you can come. I want to end with these verses. For the wrath of God, thank you, Hudson, is, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So up to this point in the book, it's been all good news, but then all of a sudden he shifts to the negative news. You say, Pastor Craig, why are you telling us all about the good news? Now you're just going to go to the bad news like what up Paul Paul's like here's what up you'll never appreciate the good news till you understand the bad news and the bad news is what makes the good news so good and the bad news for the next two chapters he's, he's going to say Jew or Gentile you are consigned under God's eternal judgment and the wrath of God is upon them unless they find themselves in Christ by his grace and believe in him now how often do you hear church People say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Ever heard that? Those are people who don't know either the Old Testament or the New Testament. Because the Old Testament has all kinds of promises of God's forgiveness and examples of grace. And the New Testament, like Romans we just read, has plenty in Revelation of the wrath of God. And here's one of them. He said, the wrath of God is revealed because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. He now explains it. Watch this. For since the creation of the world, his attributes, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they, what? The people in the world, that's us, are without excuse because although they knew God, this is historically, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. They weren't thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts their foolish hearts were dark and professing to be wise and they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So he describes their idolatry and he's making a very impressive argument to the Roman readers. He's saying God is invisible and unknowable but he's made himself knowable in a sense 
through the visible proof of His creation. And He's given you a conscience, believer, to apprehend the visible creation around you. And so you're without excuse. And the argument that Paul is using, friends, is what we call a teleological argument. And that's the argument of design. If you look around and you're a thinking person, you're looking around the world, you understand the world I live in looks like it has been custom made. The world that I look at, it has been designed. And if it indeed reveals design, then it must infer a designer. If the art hanging in the skies over Bar Harbor, Maine is impressive, the artist must be much more impressive. If what we see from the visible qualities of the creation around us looks beautiful, I love Jesus. I love the glorious designer and creator he is who superintends the creation for you and I to enjoy in the fall, man, in an awesome in North Georgia in the fall. He says, if you see design, you better know there is a design. You better know there's a, a beautiful designer behind it. In Psalm 19, David said, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His beautiful handiwork. Night into night or day into day, they reveal speech and they pour forth knowledge. And the rest of Americans are almost dead because their hearts are darkened. It's not a head problem we have. It's a heart problem we have. We don't want to surrender to God. That's why Johann Kepler, one of the greatest astronomers, father of modern astronomy he said the undevout astronomer is nuts he said if you are an, a scientist and you really study design you have to be crazy to say there's no designer he said that men are without excuse no matter where they're at on the planet the wrath of God is coming down on people who have not accepted the good news and then he goes on. And Paul then shows the degeneration of the whole ancient world. Are you eager? Like Paul, are you in debt to share the gospel? Like I wanted in my preaching. I love to, I love to preach about theological truths, but... What I really want is to see sinners saved, to see lives transformed. I feel like Spurgeon, let me give you this quote as the team comes. Spurgeon said these powerful words. He said, if my hearers are not converted, I've wasted my time. I've lost the exercise of brain and heart. I feel as if I lost my hope and lost my life. Unless I find for my Lord some blood-bought ones. I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ then unpack all the divine mysteries of the word. I'm eager. Paul said, I'm in debt to share the gospel. That's how he begins this beautiful letter. But we're out of time. So we'll come back next week and pick up the degeneration of how the world gets further and further from God, yet the grace is still available. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.